Here we go. My name is Todd. This is Kathy. Welcome back to another episode of Zen Parenting Radio. This is podcast number 615. Why listen to Zen Parenting Radio? Because you'll feel outstanding. And always remember our motto, which is the best predictor of a child's well-being, is a parent's self-understanding. The main focus on today's show is going to be um, a blog that my lovely wife just forwarded to me. Um, so why don't you tease it, and then I'm going to go into the Zen Parenting Well, moment. it's an article from Psychotherapy Networker that our friend uh, Dr. Alexandra Solomon posted, and it's really about how we've made therapy too complex. Mm. Um, but I want to talk about how it relates to parenting and telling our own stories. Sweet. I have to cough. <coughs> you cough, girl. Okay. Sorry. Um, few announcements. Uh, we Zen Parenting and Men Living is do is joining NAMI in their walk on September 18th. And I want to acknowledge a few people who have donated to the cause. Jim Snyder, David Young, Craig Dooley, and Tim Peters. Some of those guys will be walking with me. So um, we have a goal of raising 2500 bucks. We are 22% of the way there. So if you... Um, hey, that was all men. I know. Well, it's because I sent it out to my men living guys. Uh, but I know our audience, our podcast audience is more women than men. So if you're in Chicago, walk with me. If you're not in Chicago, you can still donate to the cause. And you can do your own walk because NAMI does these walks all over the country during the fall. So What's the website? Do you know? Um, I can pull it up right now. And it'll also be in the show notes. How about I do that? Because that way you can donate uh, and join the walk yeah. and join our team, Zen Parenting Radio Perfect. slash Men Living. So it'll be in the show notes. If you just scroll up on your phone, you'll be able to go to it. Um, so thank you to those people who are going to walk with us. NAMI is the National Alliance of Mental Illness. It's a walk that Kathy and I have been doing for, I don't know, a decade or so. And so, yeah, but I first want to focus on Zen Parenting Moment. Now you took a little bit of a break, so I went back in the archives, oh boy. sweetie. So I'm catching you off guard. So I'm going to say that. <clears throat> and I pulled one uh, up called Mistakes. Okay. Okay. And you wrote this back in November, so almost a year ago. So I don't expect you to remember what you wrote. But first, I want to share the quote okay. that you did, but I'm going to do it musically. Okay. Right? And that's the name of the uh, song, Heart of the Matter, right? It's Don Henley, yep. Don Henley. Thank you, wonderful singer-songwriter Don Henley from the Eagles. Um, and uh, you, actually, I got to pull this other clip up because um, it's about mistakes, right? Uh-huh. Tell me if you recognize what this is from. Okay. Cry. Yes, I felt so bad because <laughs> I really cried. They can happen to anyone, sweetie. Absolutely. What's that from? Uh, it was on TV. I used to watch it after school. I think it's from Sesame Street. 
Oh, was it? I I don't know, but I think there's it's childhood. Yes, I mean like it's the most. It's like it just comes right back. Channel Eleven public television stuff. Because I really tried. And the video is exactly one from one from like nineteen seventy seven. Didn't it always used to make you really sad when totally. that kid was so sad? Yeah, because they really do try. They do, and we all do. And the main focus of your blog here is that when when people talk about their 20s, they often say it's a decade to make mistakes. Yes. And your whole blog is about, can we embrace taking risks and making mistakes beyond our 20s? Well, and here's the thing. You don't even have to embrace it. It's going to happen. So like when people are like, well, maybe I'll make mistakes past my 20s. Duh. Well, I would actually push back on you. I think a lot of us, including me sometimes, takes the safe road way too often. Well, I think we're talking about two different things because you're right. I understand you're talking about taking a risk, doing something new, branching out. Mm -hmm. You know, what I'm talking about is that in, just think about your everyday experiences, your conversation with someone and you don't, you are defensive Mm -hmm. or you are not listening or um, you send an email to the wrong person or you do a reply all to 600 people instead of to the one person. Like you're making mistakes all the time. So there's the big ones that are the like life-changing ones. Like should I make a, a big change? But I guess the thing is, is if we have a story that we can make mistakes in our 20s and it's okay, but after that we shouldn't, Mm. then that story is going to hurt us Mm. because then when we do make a mistake, we're not only going to have to deal with the repercussions of the mistake, but that we're somehow flawed because we're still making mistakes. Yeah, And that, I mean, I don't know a human being who doesn't make a few a day. Uh, All the time. All the time because you trip. Or you say a stupid thing or you forget someone's name. Like you and I were just having a conversation about, I ran into somebody in town, someone I know I should know. Yeah. I know I should know them. I know when I look at them, I'm like, I know your energy. We know each other. I could not come up with their name. And I think at the end I said a name and it wasn't right. And I walked away feeling horrible. And you did the same thing at work recently. Yeah, I've been calling on this customer for years, and I usually take a big group out to lunch. And this is a man that I've kind of known for a long time, Zach. And uh, I was at lunch with him yet again for like the ninth time in the last four years. And then finally, Zach said to me, by the way, my name is Steven. Oh, my God. And I felt like the smallest person in the world. Right. And it is... And I'm like, well, screw this. I'm not going to call anybody any names ever again because I'm not going to screw this up. So then we like... I'm going to say, hey, guy. Go into our like little cave and say, I don't know how to do things. My brain is failing me. Well, and I went somewhere between guilt and shame. I don't know where I went with yeah. it, but it was bad. It's like, come on, Todd. You know better than that. You toggled back and forth between the two. Well, the so let's talk about that. So guilt is I made a mistake. That's all. Mm-hmm. Um, shame is there's some. I'm a mistake. There's something wrong with me. So I think we naturally go back and forth between the two. Because first it's just like, oh my gosh, I made a mistake. That was so embarrassing. And then all of a sudden we start to like get really deep about the fact that there's something inherently flawed in us. Sweetie, we gotta I do it. Again. Really <laughs> tried. Never fun. Think um, of the amount of mistakes we, uh, I'll just talk about our reactivity to our children. Oh, yeah. Every day. 
And the thing is, is like, then, then I'm going to start focusing on words because our reactivity is part of being human beings. So is it a mistake or is it? Well, you, it depends what lens you look at it through. Correct. It could be a mistake or it could be a learning opportunity. Like, oh, that, that didn't land well. I did not, I was not present in this moment. Instead, I was reacting from this place of lack or scarcity or whatever it is. So, yeah. So there's like, it depends on how you react, whether or not there's a mistake because the reactivity is human, right? And sometimes it happens inside of us and we kind of deal with it. We, we regulate on our own. We talk it through, we deep, you know, we deep breathe, all that kind of stuff. But if we then respond to the reactivity and like yell at somebody, then that's a mistake. Yeah. So when I say react, I mean, I outwardly express my reaction versus to your point, reactivity is a human experience. And can our prefrontal cortex catch up with our reptilian brain? Because our reptilian brain is much quicker and easier to access when something bad happens. So a song that uh, my girls and I, and I, and I think you like a lot that's really kind of speaks to this is uh, on Taylor Swift's folklore album. There's a song called "This Is Me Trying," and the reason that I think it's so powerful is she talked about if anybody saw her folklore documentary, um, she talked about that she wrote it for all people, but really specifically for people who are struggling with their own challenges, if it be momentary, you know, like a, an acute challenge that they're dealing with, like a hurricane or COVID or whatever, um, or more chronic challenges like depression, ongoing depression, anxiety, fear, whatever it may be. Um, the song is about, you know, the gist of like, I know you may not think I'm showing up really well, mm-hmm. but this is what it looks like for me to try. Do you want to hear a little chaste? Sure. There you go, Taylor. Yeah. I mean, it's really, I think that all of us can relate to that song and that there are certain things that are harder, depending on who you are, certain things that are more difficult because of your history or what you're worried about or your what your concerns are for the future. And so certain things are harder for you. Mm-hmm. And sometimes your try to somebody else may not look like a try. Sweetie, we're going to close this loop. With a Socrates quote that you put in the blog. Socrates. But instead of me pulling up a YouTube clip of Socrates saying it, because I don't think YouTube was around when Socrates was around. Are you sure? I'm going to play from this, I think, Academy Award nominating film called Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Oh, that's why I said Socrates. I know. (laughs) Socrates. The only true wisdom consists in knowing that you know nothing. That's us, dude. <laughs> oh, yeah. Don't you think Bill and Ted is like, um, it just reminds me of Dude, Where's My Car? Yeah. Same exact humor, right? Yeah. To, well, and I just think, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, Keanu is like a, he's a master at that. We actually just watched part of Parenthood last night and his character in Parenthood, the movie, not the TV show. He plays Todd and he's the, T-O-D. He's basically the same, similar to yeah. Ted. Not a big stretch. So Keanu was Ted, and the other uh, guy that nobody knows is Bill. Is that correct? I think so, yeah. I have no idea. <laughs> 
Um, okay, so I sent, I played all my clips, so now I feel like it's been a successful podcast. So you're like, we're going to close up yes. now. Um, so it's interesting, Todd, because I kind of feel like this is what you just brought up is very similar to what we're going to talk oh, about. Oh, good. Because, um, so I'm trying to pull up my computer. Give me a second. Okay. So, um, like I said, Dr. Solomon posted this um, article, and let me get to the article. Sorry, everybody. It is It was in Psychotherapy Networker, and it's called Are Specialization and Clinical Complexity Really Necessary um, by Jay Efren and uh, Rob Fauber. So I don't know them, mm-hmm. but you know they obviously wrote this about their own practice and their own experience and used some um, understanding of research and everything to kind of... Um, articulate why they feel therapy is effective. And the reason I came down, I sent it to Todd and then I came downstairs and I said, I love this article because I feel like I read it and I'm like, yes, like this is all the things I try and talk about. Um, But I, sometimes you can just kind of take things from your own perspective. Like as a therapist, this is how I work with people. But I have a lot of friends who are therapists and not everybody does it the same way. And I don't look and say there's a right, wrong, good, bad way. Um, But I also feel like sometimes we get lost in the things that aren't as important. And that's kind of what I want to talk about. And, And this is not just about therapy. I think if we can understand these things, then we understand why certain uh, why the way we relate to our children is really what parenting is about rather than saying the right thing, doing the right thing, um, not making mistakes, um, getting them in the right sport, making sure they get A's. Those really aren't the things that are going to create a connection between our children and I. And that's not necessarily the thing that or things that are going to make them, and I'm putting this in air quotes, successful people. Okay. So I feel like if we were going to rename this show, I don't know what we're going to name it, but it would be how to connect with your kids in in this regard. Like well, maybe instead kinda... of following a rule book, right, of how to interact with your kids. When your kid does this, you do that, right, and all that. And I feel like what you're inviting all of us to do is to de-roll from the parenting role and instead just be fluid and conversational and relaxed and open and, I don't know, less rigid. Well, you know, the first, the opening paragraph in this article says, therapists have a knack for creating complications. In search of explanations for their client's suffering, they tend to find an attachment injury behind every relationship issue, a traumatic event for every symptom, and brain research to support every clinical maneuver. Um, And the thing is, is it, it becomes a messy landscape mm-hmm. where if you are working with someone and they come in and they tell you things and you start saying, oh, they have in your mind mm-hmm. as a therapist, oh, they have anxiety. Oh, their ACE score must mm-hmm. be high. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, wow. They had that experience. Oh, they're, they might have, uh, you know, borderline personality disorder. Oh, that happened. So all of a sudden, even your mind as a therapist is cluttered with a bunch of stories about this person. So if your mind is cluttered with the stories, you're not seeing them. Yeah. So I think what you're explaining is just presence. Yes. Being open to what's in front of you without going in your head, sifting through the catalog of things that this might be, what this might turn into, how this started. And, you know, when I, when I hear you say this, it, 
I remember when one time you and I were having a challenging conversation because we weren't seeing eye to eye on a subject or whatever. And I was trying to think in my head about how I can avoid this discussion ever happening again. How can I do this better next time? And I was not um, present with what you were saying. And really, I think all you wanted in that moment was for me to be there and not go into my head and think. So I kind of feel like that's what I think of when you bring this up. Yeah. And the the thing that's interesting is that what is it that <clears throat> that really makes a person have shifts, hmm. okay? And I'm using very non-clinical language on purpose because I think clinical language is part of the cluttering yeah. of our brains. I think parenting languages, the parenting language around what we should and shouldn't do clutters our brain. I think too many parenting books, as I'm about to promote my own mm -hmm. parenting book can be cluttering if we're trying to do 10 different things at once and make sure we cover every base then we are not present for the experience and what's interesting is that Jerome Frank who is uh, a therapist who is his research is discussed in this article he talks about the necessary conditions for therapeutic change Okay, so what are the conditions for change? And again, even just saying therapeutic change, like what are the conditions for change? Mm -hmm. Like, let's just like, what are the, the things we need? And he's and the things that he says, and he goes deeper into these and we can say them in different ways. But basically, uh, you know, psychological contact between the therapist and client. Um, genuineness, genuineness in the therapist. Like, I just love that language. Like there's a genuineness. Mm. This person really wants to support and help. Um, an unconditional positive regard for the person mm. and an empathetic understanding from the therapist. Right. So, um, you know, also there's, there's other things like noticing, you know, that there is something that needs to shift in the client recognizing, you know, the list goes on, but basically the things I just read to you was connection, genuineness, positive regard for the person and empathetic understanding. So in other words, next time your kid's melting down, yeah. ask yourself if you are connected with them, Correct. ask yourself if you are being genuine right. instead trying to act like somebody you're not, correct? do you have a positive regard for your kid mm -hmm. in that moment? And odds are, if there's an issue, you might be, at least in your head, cursing out your kid because he or she is trying to make your day worse than you were hoping. Yes. And can you be empathetic? And a lot of times us parents are not empathetic because we forgot what it's like to be a kid. And it's just easier to say, well, I got through this, so you need to get through it. And there is no empathy. If you have not experienced empathy as you've grown up, and I'm just not talking about from zero to 10, I mean in high school, I mean in college, if empathy has not really been the consistent factor in the people you relate with mm -hmm. or relate or the people who have supported you or not supported you, then it's understandable why it might be difficult to offer mm -hmm. because you probably don't trust it. And you probably don't even know what it feels like. And you probably think it's a, I'm putting this in air quotes, easy way out. Yeah. I can understand why people don't trust a therapeutic approach um, or an empathetic approach. Because we what we do in life a lot is if we had something happen to us or we went through life a certain way 
And then we were able to construct some kind of meaning or create a life that works somewhat. Then we look back on all of our experiences and we say, if these things didn't happen, I wouldn't be here today. Therefore, my child needs to experience this negativity, this pain, this camp, this sport, um, this kind of teacher, this kind of negative input or output, because that's what made me who I am. And I understand constructing meaning because that makes us feel better. That's actually the- you Feel know, safe. It does. And it's, you know, David Kessler, who he actually created a, a sixth stage of grief. Um, he actually, and this is like, was, um, what's her name? The woman who, Kubler-Ross. She, he actually worked with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross on her stages of grief and got the okay from her people mm. to add this sixth stage, which is create meaning- around your experiences. So you can understand why someone would look back on their pain and say, there was meaning in that because look as, look at where I am today. And, that, and I'm not saying that's not true because it is f- for them. What I'm saying is not everybody needs to go through your experiences to find their own meaning. Yeah, it's not a one-way path at towards all. arriving at maybe the same destination. Exactly. And so... Why that's important is that can detach us from things have to look this way and follow this pattern if my kid is going to make it and be successful in whatever that word means to you. That helps you declutter your parenting canvas (laughs) so you can look at this person and help them deal, support them in whatever they're experiencing in that moment rather than, oh, crap, Mm -hmm. I need to get to change their mind, shift this perspective yell at the kid who yelled at my kid, um, talk to the parent who didn't respect my kid, call the teacher who didn't give my kid an A, and get really involved because you're thinking the path needs to look a certain way. I don't know if this will make sense, but I was sitting in a circle with men this weekend at a father-daughter weekend, and we were talking about how we sometimes get reactive when we're dealing with our kids. And where some of us ended up is, you know, let's say you need to go out the door and your kid's not cooperating. Let's say you have a toddler and all that. It's well, where we arrived at is, are you sure that whatever's happening right now is a problem? And I don't know if that makes sense, but we tend to make up all these stories and give certain things meaning that if I'm late for this thing, then, then everything, everything. is going to yeah. go down the pisser. And it's almost like, maybe that's when you just pause, like in the grand scheme of things, is this really as big of a deal as I'm is the meaning I'm giving it to. And maybe that's like one small step is just pause and say, okay, so what if you're five minutes late? Or what if your kid gets a D instead of a B on a homework assignment because they need to get better sleep than study for another 90 minutes for a test or something like that. So it's almost like a reality check is like, what's the most important thing in this moment. Right now. Exactly. Not what's the most important thing in my big picture of what my kid's life is going to look mm. like because you can't hold that. That's That doesn't make any sense because you don't know. Like one of the things that, um, that I've written about in the Zen Parenting Moment, but I also have it in my book, is about how um, Barbara Brown Taylor, she's an author, and she wrote about how life is not a train, a linear train. Mm-hmm. It's a sailboat ride mm. where you set out... And you have no idea where you're going to end up. 
there's this vastness, these waters. It's more of an adventure. A train is like you're going to hit all these stops. It's linear. It's linear. And that's not what life is like. But we will be on a sailboat ride thinking it should be like a train. Mm -hmm. And then we're missing the water. We're missing the beauty. We're missing the, you know, the breeze. We're missing everything because it's not linear. Well, we just um, watched Parenthood last night at the end and the the wisdom of grandma uh, talks about the difference between the merry-go-round, which is kind of this safe ride that not much happens. Just goes round and round. And the roller coaster, which is terrifying terrifying and exciting. Yeah. And if you think about it, that's really what parenting is going to be like, whether you like it or not. Well, okay, so let's just focus on parenthood. We actually have done a pop culturing about parenthood, and I know we've talked about this movie before on Zen Parenting Radio, but this is something that has been really important to me in understanding how I relate to my kids. I have felt so much terror as a parent in certain moments where I've actually looked at Todd and been like, why did we do this? Mm. Like, why did we choose this? And and I'm somewhat being facetious. I'm not, but part of me is not. Part of me is like, oh my God, I chose all of this because to raise humans and to support them and help them. And I have been overwhelmed at different versions of having three very little girls or, you know, when they were, you know, trying to get everyone to school or now getting someone to college. It's so much terror. Yet... That's where all the joy comes from. And the example I can give is from this movie, you know, Steve Martin is at his wit's end. He's, I got it pulled up if you want to listen to it. I don't know if you want to listen. Well, to it. is it the part where he catches the ball? No, it's grandma telling the roller coaster okay, story. Okay, I'll say the catch the ball thing and then you okay. can do the roller coaster story. So basically he's so down and he basically is, he's found out his wife is pregnant and he's like, oh my God, how am I going to do this again? All I have is responsibility. You know, he's just got all these quotes about he has no choice. He only has responsibility. And then he's at a ball game, his son's ball game, and a ball is hit to his son. His son catches it, which his son hasn't done before. To win the game. And Steve Martin flips out with joy. Yeah. Because the terror that he has been experiencing, the opposite of it, when he has an experience of like, an unexpected moment of greatness. It's the best feeling he's ever had in his life. Well, and earlier in the movie, his son missed the ball. Right. And he was being ostracized by his teammates. Exactly. And then his son has this moment where he caught it Mm -hmm. and he cannot contain his joy. And so when we talk about pain and joy being connected, that's what we mean. Terror and joy. Like you would never have that experience of joy without having the experience of terror before. Or I'm using the word terror. You guys could use fear, discomfort, yeah. um, feeling anxious, whatever works for you. I just use the word terror because that's what it feels like in my body. And then right up this clip that Todd is going to play right before this clip, he is saying to his wife, what if he would have dropped it? Mm -hmm. And she says, but he didn't. Mm -hmm. And she said, but what if he would have? Mm -hmm. She said, but he didn't. So it's about 75 seconds. Do a lot of things. I mean, baseball's the least of it. And all those things sometimes are going to miss. Sometimes they won't. Sometimes they will. Sometimes they will. will. What do you want me to give you? Guarantees? These are kids, not appliances. Life is messy. I hate messy. It's, it's, it's so messy. <laughs> you know, when I was 19, Grandpa took me on a roller coaster. I can't do it. Oh. Up, down, up, down. Oh, what a ride. 
What a great story. I always wanted to go again. You know, it was just interesting to me that a rye could make me so, so frightened, so scared, so sick, so, so excited and, and so thrilled all together. Some didn't like it. They went on the merry-go-round. That just goes around. Nothing. I like the roller coaster. You get more out of it. I happen to like the roller coaster. <laughs> well, and there is no, I don't know if there's a better analogy than that. Like that is exactly what, and, and I have come to accept the roller coaster or the terror joy, you know, dichotomy or, you know, whatever we want to call it so much that sometimes when, you know, I'll be like, oh, making the bed, waking up. And then I realize something's going on with one of the people I love and I'll be like, here we go. Yeah, like, buckle in. And I don't mean here we go, like, aren't these people a pain in the ass? That's not what I mean. I just mean- You're about to get on the ride. Correct. And it may not be as scary as I thought. It may be like a, a kid roller coaster mm. that morning, or it might be like the roller coaster where there's no ground under your feet, yeah. which you know I'm not a fan of. But the thing is, is it will eventually end- Meaning, yeah, the ride will come to an end. It will. You go to sleep and you wake up the next yes. day, and you might get on a different type of roller coaster. Yes. yes. Or maybe you have a merry-go-round day. Where maybe nothing happens. Yeah, and and those are lovely. Sometimes mm. merry-go-round days are are wonderful respite, but they can also be not so. I had an experience with summer with uh, so many things in life. Some things with my family, just you know, just big things where. There was a lot to consider this summer and a lot of things that needed to be worked through and dealt with. And I have never had a more meaningful summer in my life. Mm -hmm. I actually just uh, dropped off one of my daughters at school and a song came on and I said to her, gosh, this song will always remind me of this summer. And I really look at the summer and day to day, I was very scared, mm -hmm. but overall it was the most meaningful summer I've ever had. Why? Because it was a lot of roller coaster and it was a lot of terror and a lot of joy. And it was... And so the idea of having a summer or a year or a week or a month of just round and round sounds good in theory. And I know some of you listening are like, give me round and round, please. And I hear you because I, I have that moment too. I have many days I feel that way and we are deserving of round and round sometimes. But that's not really what life is. Well, and you know, so yeah, this summer was an interesting one for us. I think we needed to put on our parenting hats in a way that we didn't think we would have to put on our parenting hats and mm -hmm. be more available and be more selfless. Like we we had to attend to our kids more than we thought we needed to. And my so, mom and your yeah, dad. Yeah. yeah. And and I there's a part of me that felt sorry for myself. Like I just want to go out and have a beer with the guys or I want to take you out to dinner, but instead we can't because we have to deal with these other things. And then um, a friend of mine just reframed it for me. Like, my God, what a gift. Like you, there was no other place you should have been. Absolutely. So once again, it says, what lens are you looking at the world through? And there's this belief that, oh, if I took Kathy out to dinner tonight, I'd be so much happier. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't. Yeah. It, we should still go out to dinner. Don't yeah. get me wrong. But if we're comparing things like... I'm not happy doing this, but out to dinner with you equals happy. That is, that is, well, let me read this quote that you can kind of dive into because it's exactly um, what we're talking about here. Um, were you going to say something? Go no, ahead while no. I find it. Um, okay. So he's, so in this article that we're talking about, he says, 
he's talking about the the decluttering of the therapeutic field, which basically just means stop having all these answers before you've even listened to somebody. Mm -hmm. Stop analyzing someone based on a diagnosis versus just the person in front of you. And he said, perhaps the best way to avoid being ensnared in assumptive cobwebs is to remind ourselves that, as they say in the East, it doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter that it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. I know some people... I Again, I keep talking about this book that I wrote, but it what I did in, in this book is I tried to blend Western and Eastern, right? All the research from Western with a lot of Eastern concepts, which is why I really like that that this author used this Eastern concept too, which is it can sound hopeless, like almost, you know, like nihilism. Yeah. Like, well, it doesn't matter. So why does yeah, it matter? Yeah, nothing matters. What's the point? But when you realize that it doesn't matter, and it doesn't matter that it doesn't matter, you get to create your own meaning, and your own storytelling. So you don't have to you don't have to decide it has to be a certain way. You don't have to follow the lead of somebody else and think that this is the only way to happiness. You don't have to if we had a plan for dinner and then it didn't work out, we don't have to say, well now everything's going to suck. Mm-hmm. Maybe what we're doing here is exactly where we're supposed what to. What if be. you take on the idea that it doesn't matter that it doesn't matter? It all you could either be a victim of that or you could be liberated right. by it. Like, oh, well, then anything is possible. Right. Instead of it has to fit into this space. Right. And so he actually goes on to say, I'll paraphrase what he writes. He says, this has two parts, both which are equally important. Not only does life and what we make of it not matter, but it's also perfectly fine that it doesn't matter. That doesn't need to stress you out. The problem is that when you tell people nothing matters, they tend to defiantly cross their arms, threaten to stop doing whatever they're doing. After all, if it doesn't matter, why shouldn't they just take a back seat and watch the world go by? Of course, those who adopt that stance reveal that they've only grasped the first part of the equation, meaning it doesn't matter. In other words, they think that it matters that it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're totally going down a rabbit hole, I know, but I love this kind of stuff because this is where I feel like we start to understand the biggest, the bigger picture is when we put a lot of, you know, let's say this, my kid was supposed to make this team yeah. and he or she didn't yep. and we're suffering and we're suffering. And what if we were like, actually, that doesn't matter. It sucks. And I'm going to have a a normal emotional reaction to disappointment at something I thought that was important. But the bigger perspective is that wasn't the answer. It doesn't mean everything's over. And there's something bigger at play. And I don't mean that in a I'm not trying to be mystical about like, oh, and you know, the, this gets a little difficult because sometimes when we say something like, you know, when a, when a window closes, a door opens or Mm -hmm. vice versa, when a door closes, Mm -hmm. a window opens, I believe that completely, but it may not happen right away. And it, and it certainly probably won't happen in the way that you want it to like, oh, my kid didn't make this team, but they'll make that team. And then all of a sudden they don't make that team either. Like, well, wait a second. Like every struggle, challenge, mistake, we started with mistakes at the beginning of the show, is an opportunity for growth right. or it's an opportunity to, you know, bury your head in the sand and not want to deal with it and get pissed and numb out and have a drink and all this other stuff. I'm appreciating the fact that you said 
that you'll also have your natural human response Absolutely. when your kid doesn't make the team. Because what I have a tendency to do, I don't think I do it as much as I used to, is skip over the emotion and just go to the lesson. Right. So I think that that's an important distinction. Because we can't, no matter how aware we become and no matter how much we can see the bigger picture we're still human beings having a human experience. Now, we are also spiritual beings having a human experience. I get that, mm-hmm. but we're human. Mm-hmm. Like, let's just, our feet are on the ground, we're in these bodies, um, and we are going to have an experience if something doesn't go our way or the way that we wanted it to. What the key is, is when you're having the experience and allowing yourself to, that you know in the back of your mind or in your heart that you will take a wider perspective and you do trust in the wider perspective, but right now you just want to feel it. You just want to have a good cry. And people who skip over that emotional human part, that is like what you said. It's like a spiritual bypassing or it's a, I'm going to stuff this down. But emotion is energy and it moves through our body. And if you stuff it, you stuff the energy. And if you do that too often, it becomes even bigger. Mm. You know, it can become more like a... Um, it's going to leak through in some other way, which we've talked about a lot. Um, but going back to this article and, and we'll, cause this is one of this, this conversation is a sailboat. It's not a linear conversation sure. of do A, B and C, but you know, he goes on to say, you know, you want to declutter the therapeutic canvas, which basically all that means is start with this person in front of you and listen, don't take This is where it gets really interesting with diagnoses and labels, because we often need them to better understand ourselves. And paradoxically, they can be a challenge because then we have an expectation or a belief about someone without listening to their story. Mm -hmm. This connects to what you and I talked about last week, the difference between I am anxious and I feel anxious. I got a few emails about that uh, regarding like, what's the difference? This is just language. It's no big deal. But in this discussion we're having this week, it's a huge deal because you are not anxiety personified. Mm -hmm. You are having the feeling of anxiety, which is a very human experience. And for you personally, it may be more chronic. It may, there may be, you need more tools than maybe the person sitting next to you. You may need more help, support, and that's okay, but you are not anxiety. And the person who is hearing your story, if it be your parent or your or the therapist or whoever it may be, need to see you from that human perspective, not from the diagnosis and treatment perspective. Mm-hmm. Make sense? It does. And um, so when I coach guys, the model I learned is kind of rigid and I'm trying to be more fluid with it. But the very first step, they're like, don't even go to step two until you get step one. And step one is to make sure your client feels like they just, they just were heard. Correct. Like, so like, we're like some, I feel like this is really important discussion, but nothing is going to work unless you first are available to create the space and listen in to whatever's happening in front of you. And it's a, it sounds like it's an easy thing to do. It's not. No. My brain is conditioned to think about the future. My brain is conditioned to think about the past. My brain is totally conditioned to want to fix the problem before I truly even understand it. And the best way to, you know, what's what's weird is the best way to fix the problem is to make sure that whoever's talking to you, your son, your daughter, your wife, your husband, whoever, 
it has been heard and listened to. And the other part, which you kind of said with that you're trying to fix the problem is sometimes you're talking to someone and you'll say in your head, oh, this person is just like my client from yesterday. Mm -hmm. Oh, they have the exact same problem. So I'm going to use the exact same Mm -hmm. tools. Oh, this person. Oh yeah. This person's really going to struggle for at least a year. You start to make up all these stories about who this person is. Yeah. And if you even just, if you do nothing else other than get present with them and then literally don't do anything else, that's not a bad start. Well, it is the start. Like like you said, that is the only way because that is, you know, going off of, I was just saying Jerome Frank's, um, you know, examples of what makes good therapeutic practice, the connection between the therapist and client. And I say that to people whenever a lot of people email me about, do you know a therapist? Do you know a therapist? And I'll always give names or people that I think have a practice that suits their needs. You know, I may not even know the therapist, but I'll read about mm-hmm. them and say, okay, they they have the interventions that I think you'll appreciate. But I always say, even if this person is good for this, for someone you know, they may not be the best fit for you yeah. because that that it's relationship first. You don't go to a therapist and say, well, they've studied, they have their doctorate, um, they're you know, I've heard that they have this kind of, um, you know, professional credential, so they must be good They're They might be really good, yeah. but they might not be the right fit for sure. you. So I think sometimes, and I think that's what this article was about, which I appreciated is that, you know, basically he talks about, he goes into a paragraph about, is this clinical complexity really necessary? Mm. Like, do we keep having to, um, get specialization so people will be like, okay, now you're really good at this. And do we keep having to label things in new ways? Like for example, listen to this, the list of, okay, we all know that trauma is now a language that we understand. Okay. And I am grateful for that Mm -hmm. because understanding trauma helps us understand not only why people do what they do, but their neurobiology, what's going on inside of them. So we have more compassion and understanding, but the list of possible traumas have now expanded to include insidious trauma, intergenerational trauma, vicarious trauma, micro trauma, betrayal trauma. And now another one has just been added called just world trauma, which basically means that their belief about a benevolent world changes where they realize that some good deeds are rewarded, some aren't, and that wrongdoings are sometimes punished and sometimes not. And that doesn't even talk about the obvious ones, which are physical, emotional, sexual, all right. that stuff. And the thing is, is that that benevolent world trauma that we're calling it isn't, you know, he says in the article, isn't this what we call growing up? Mm-hmm. Like one thing that my um, daughter said to me recently was that she was trying for a long time to get back to the constant happiness that she felt at nine and 10, Mm -hmm. where she'd wake up every day and be ready and ready to go and so happy and no matter what happened. And what she's realized on her own, by the way, is that's not what late teens, that's not what a late teen brain is doing. Mm -hmm. Her teenage brain can see abstraction. It has experienced challenge. It knows life has inherent risks. It knows that she has to like confront things on a daily basis that are difficult socially, emotionally, and that it's it's not that it's bad, it's just different. Mm-hmm. And that nine and 10, her world was really limited. And while she was like, oh yeah, I felt happy and we can call that innocence, we can call that whatever, you can't live in that place your whole life. But wouldn't it be nice? 
I get it, but it would also be limited. A nine or 10-year-old cannot be in relationship with a partner. A nine or 10-year-old cannot be a parent. A nine or 10-year-old cannot experience Mm -hmm. um, so many things that adult joy comes from. And so in some ways, yes. And I think that's why there's movie, there's Peter Pan and Mm -hmm. why there's Cocoon and movies like that or like Big or... What are other movies where we go back in time and we want to be Freaky Friday or, you know. 17 again. I think that's what George Burns and somebody else. Well, I think they redid it with Zac Efron they did and too. somebody else. But anyway, we always want to go back to mm. a simpler time. But what is always the moral of the movie or the story or, you know, you can't. Mm. And so what is, you know, in Cocoon, how many people stayed young? Do you remember? For some reason, I'm thinking of uh, the Twilight Zone movie and not Cocoon. I don't remember the premise of Cocoon other than it's a bunch of old people that could play basketball as if they were young. So an alien comes to Earth to like a nursing home. Totally realistic. Wilford Brimley is like 52 years old. Yeah, he's our age in Cocoon, by the way. Um, And he comes to the, it's a woman. She comes to Earth and gives them this youthful experience and then basically says, I can take some of you with me or you can stay like this. I can't really remember if they leave with her or what. And I think 90% of them are like, no, 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 because then we would lose these relationships and these experiences and these people. Mm. And that's what life is about. Yeah. And, you know, I think it can be, I think as a parent, it can be difficult to walk our kids from that young age of like innocence into a more, that's why pre-adolescence is so challenging, right? Because all of a sudden they see more, hear more, understand more. They're more pissed about things. They're having more of an experience. Their brain is growing. Yeah. But we also are given this gift of walking our kids through this mm. and letting them know that there will be new joy, a different kind of joy. You know, it's like going, I, I don't want to talk too much about Santa Claus because I don't know who's listening right now, but it's the Santa Claus of our youth, and then the Santa Claus of our adulthood. Mm -hmm. There is, I have a Santa Claus. It's not exactly the same though as it was in youth. Yeah. Makes sense? I totally get it. What are you going to play? I can tell you. Uh, Well, I'm not going to play. It's a 90 second trailer on Cocoon because I forget what it, I forget what happened. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I just think of Twilight Zone, the movie where they play kick the can and they all turn young and everybody's like, screw that, man. I'm not going to be young again except one kid. Who's like I'm? I'm going back. So am I mixing up Cocoon and Twilight Zone? Uh, maybe, but I like I said, I don't remember Cocoon that well. I remember Twilight Zone, and they the the man gives everybody the opportunity to stay young, and okay. they're all like, "Screw that, man!" I remember when my mom died and all this pain and yes. grief that happened, and then one of the kids, uh, one of the younger the people who turned younger, he decided to stay young. And yes. do it all over again. And, and you, I've always identified with that character. You have. And I think that, yeah, I, I understand that. So, yeah, it basically just says. And I feel like I've made that hypothetical with many adults and everybody like, almost everybody's like, no, I wouldn't want to go back. Well, in no way do I feel offended. That's not what I'm saying. But if you were to go, you've said that to the girls before. You've been like, no, I'd go back. Mm-hmm. And basically what that means is you would not have kids and you would not be with me. Mm-hmm. So you're choosing yeah, well maybe uh, maybe in this parallel universe, I get to meet you later on in life. Like, there's no rules. So it's you not sh- like I'd be like, 
oh, well, then I will have to give all of you up and never see you again. We would figure it out. So then I would say, I would ask you, and I think you and I have discussed this at length, so I think I know your answer. Do you believe you've romanticized that time and forgotten what challenges and pain is in that time? I have no idea. Possibly. And and I say that in not to convince you, but like, don't you think... Like I have figured out just recently how much I romanticized high mm-hmm. school. Like now that I have a daughter who just graduated and one who's in the middle of it and one who will be going next year, I I really romanticized high school. Like that it was the best thing ever for me. And I had forgotten a lot of things. And so my point is, is it's like, I don't know. Like, well, And I will also say the movie came out in 1983. And I remember exiting the theater saying I would be that kid. So maybe you It's not like I've story. reconsidered it every single year between 1983 and now. You know, maybe I just habitually be like, yeah, that, that's the kid. That's I would be that guy yeah. without really taking in what it would mean. Right. We're so, I, sweetie, I'm glad I'm with you. Let's just Well, say that. and like I said, I'm not taking offense, but I am the opposite because mm-hmm. like uh, the movie that, it, this is so old, but it was a, it's a stage production too. It's called Prelude to a Kiss. And I think the movie was Alec Baldwin and Meg Ryan. Mm-hmm. And that story is, there's, Meg Ryan is very worried about the future and what it holds. And then there's this old guy who wants to go back in time okay. and they kiss and they trade lives. Mm. So now she knows what's going to happen. She's old and he has to do it all over again. And they both realize that's not great, Yeah, you know, and I can more relate to, I want my people in my memories, um, the good, the bad and everything than to go back and be stuck in a time. Yeah. So you and I just have a different like perspective. I just remember really relating to that movie. So I'll just finish with this because we're talking about such broad concepts that can be discussed forever, meaning like there is no, um, there is no like right or wrong or solution to this discussion. It's just the way that a perception can help you feel better about something. And one of the things that they end with in this article is he says, as we've noted, um, there is this philosophical stance that nothing ultimately matters and that life is never personal. And this means chucking our own preconceptions for long enough to hear which allegiances and conflicts bind, or actually not bind, blind the client to viable possibilities. That's a lot of jargon. All they're saying is that if we realize that life is not as intense as we're making it, that it's actually just a sailboat ride and an an adventure, then we have more space and less weight on us Mm. to make choice. And that we as parents or as therapists, when we're not so overwhelmed by I have to solve this problem and make this person better and get them on track and make them see something, when we have a broader perspective of I trust this process, this part is hard, this part is painful, but I am going to open up my mind to all these viable possibilities. So what we want our kids to understand and what we want to understand about ourselves is that we are the storytellers of our lives. We're the ones who make the meaning. And now I understand that we have to adhere to a certain structure. Like we have to follow the rules of a society. You know, if you're in fourth grade, your kid has to go into fourth grade. Like we have structures like that for, for a purpose. Don't blow it all up. Right. We're not going to blow up everything, but 
there's and we'll follow laws and you know recommendations from scientists. Um, but I also think that when we're looking at our own life and our perspective, we get to decide what things mean. And we get to storytell. Even the people like I started with who say they look back at the pain in their life and they say, all those things happened so I could be this person. I don't, I don't doubt that story. Mm. What I want them to do, though, is then expand back even bigger and say, and my kid will have their own story based on what happens with them. Yeah. And we don't need to create a story. We allow, you know, we're not going to have the linear make all these stops. We are going to have a nice sailboat ride. Like we're getting right now texts from JC who's yep. starting her college classes today. And I texted her something very similar to this this morning. Cause of course she's like, she's going to her first college class. Yeah. And I was like, this actually, I'll just read you what the text said because she was like, you know, <laughs> you know, mom, I've got, you know, she was kind of like, Oh my gosh. So I said, I know it feels like a lot. You have everything you need. I bet the teacher is pretty nice too. All of this is an adventure. There's no right way to do it. Just venture into your class, see what happens. You are safe and good, no matter what. And then I said, but call if you need a pep talk. Like, I'm here, but I also, it doesn't have to mean so much. Just go into the class, you know, and and I knew she, she can do that. So I feel like what you're saying is sometimes our kids, ourselves, our own parents take life so seriously, way too seriously. And my quickest hack to not do that is to go outside in the evening and look at the stars. Absolutely. That is like the, the, the most direct way I could pause. And because I know from understanding astronomy that we are stardust. So we came from stars and we just yep. somehow evolved into these human beings with these tables that we sit in front of and these chairs we sit on, it all came from the stars. So if sometimes life can be overwhelming, my best hack, aside from taking a conscious breath, is to look at the stars. I mean, even more so than the ocean or a tree, you know, nature, I I love to connect with just look sitting underneath a tree or looking at a great body of water. But stars is where I just, I can't even describe the awesomeness and the infinite nature of the universe. And then it brings me back into maybe a slightly more calm place. And when you look at the stars, you realize you don't matter at all. And yet you matter so significantly because you're here, Hmm. because you are a star that's here. You're from stardust, right? So if you're here, you're supposed to be. Yet when you look at everything up in the sky, you're like, okay, I'm very small in this Hmm. equation, yet... I get to do this. And when I, I get to be with these people and have this experience and it's just, you know, as one of our teachers used to say, it's just an earth walk. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're just walking the earth for a certain amount of time. We're just, or we're on our sailboat. Mm -hmm. So instead of half it to make it be something specific, let's just do it. And, and then yet honor the human experiences where we get disappointed, sad, grieve, feel afraid. Like all those things are still real. Like, these are not spiritual bypass 
solutions. These are greater perspective solutions. There's a difference between feeling grounded and trusting in that bigger picture and then being a human being who's dealing with all the brain, sure. you know. Yeah, we got to respect our brain. Chatter. Yeah, it, it just, we got to deal with it. And we got to deal with the part pain of, of being are. human. And yeah. part of who we are is our heart center and our emotions and our body and everything else. So, okay. Um, Team Zen, we have one this Friday, a Zen talk. If you don't know what Team Zen is, it is a community of like-minded parents kind of giving and getting support. And we've done 126 of these. And I just announced to our team this morning that we have, uh, I have created with the support of uh, one of our assistants, a resource page. So you can scan all 126 talks and go specifically to that talk at that moment. And you can just kind of quickly get the support that you're looking for. So I'm excited about our team being able to do that. I also want to remind everybody that if you do join the team, that uh, the month of September, we're donating 20% of our proceeds to NAMI, to the NAMI walk that we're leading up. So um, if you're interested, just go to zenparentingradio.com and look for the link talking about Team Zen. And then obviously, as always, I do one-on-one coaching for men. First session is free. And uh, the Men Living Experience, which is a virtual and in-person community of guys connecting deeply and living fully. Um, just check us out at, at uh, menliving.org. And then lastly, um, our partner, Jeremy Craft. He's a bald head of beauty, painting and remodeling throughout the Chicagoland area. 630-956-1800. Anything else you want to... Just make sure... Will you link to this article that we were talking about? I will link I th- to the article. Be at the top of... Or close to the top of these show notes. I think therapists will love it. As a parent, I think it might be interesting. And um, and thank you, Dr. Solomon, for posting it. All right. Keep trucking, everybody. Thanks for listening, everyone. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And feel free to leave a five-star review. It helps people find us. The best part of what we do is getting to spend time with our listeners in an awesome community of parents who have come together over at Team Zen. Team Zen is a great opportunity to connect as much as you want with a group of like-minded parents, and you'll even get exclusive content from Kathy and me. Find out more about Team Zen on our site, zenparentingradio.com. We know your inbox needs more hopeful and helpful info, so sign up for the Zen Parenting Moment. Two times a week, you'll receive a quick read that will boost your day and improve your outlook. Sign up at zenparentingradio.com. While men and women, moms and dads, parents and non-parents are all welcome here at ZPR, we know most of our followers are female and moms. So today we're shouting out an opportunity that's just for the guys. Men Living creates opportunities for men to gather together to give and get support and build friendship. I am one of the founders of the group, and you'll find me every week helping facilitate our virtual meeting on Wednesday nights at 7.30. Interested or want to share the details with someone you love? You can find the Zoom link at menliving.org. Ready for a Gen X view of personal growth? Join us for Pop Culturing, our podcast filled with humor, fun, and a characteristic emphasis on self-awareness as we explore movies, TV, and pop culture. And don't forget, I coach guys. So if you're interested, head on over to toddadamscoaching.com and schedule a one-on-one session. First session is free. Finally, I want to give a special thanks to our founding partner, Jeremy Kraft. He's a bald head of beauty. And the company he has is Avid. They do painting and remodeling throughout the Chicagoland area. Go to avidco.net or give them a call at 630-956-1800. Thanks for all your love and support and keep on trucking.